Video Guzman became a top leader of the Sinaloa cartel after his father, Joaquin Guzman, was arrested and convicted in Brooklyn federal court. He's now serving a life sentence in the United States. Mexican armed forces captured Ovidio Guzman and transported him to Mexico City. In what appeared to be an attempt to stop that transport, alleged cartel members besieged parts of Sinaloa State, burning vehicles, even shooting at a passenger airplane. The U.S. believes Ovidio Guzman is a major trafficker of fentanyl and other drugs into the United States. Aaron Katursky, ABC News, New York. Yeah, good afternoon. Happy Friday, folks. Thanks for joining us. Uh, we'll start with the news in Mexico where we've uh, seen some violence and unrest erupt in recent days and a situation, obviously, that has affected a number of Canadian tourists, primarily in Mazatlan, which is a popular destination for Canadian tourists. This, of course, is uh, within Sinaloa province, where the Sinaloa cartel uh, is uh, a force to be reckoned with, and we've seen that in recent days. Now, the operation to arrest El Chapo's son, uh, was uh, quite a bloody one. 29 killed during that operation to arrest Ovidio Guzman Lopez. Now, he was captured in Culiacan, flown to Mexico City. Uh, but since then, members of the cartel have set up roadblocks, set fire to vehicles, even attacked planes at a local airport. Uh, so it's, as mentioned, uh, affected a number of Canadians in the area. A number of flights uh, in and out of the region have been canceled. The Mazatlan airport was closed. It sounds as though it may be reopened. Although Sunwing, we've just learned, has canceled flights from Calgary and Edmonton to Mazatlan today. But I want to get a better understanding of what's going on here, why Guzman has been arrested now, what connection there might be to the upcoming visit to Mexico City by U.S. President Biden and Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Someone who's been watching all of this very closely, our friend Douglas Century, author and journalist. He's author of the book Hunting El Chapo. His most recent include a Split Decision and The Last Boss of Brighton. Douglas, great to have you with us here. Welcome back to the program. Thank you for having me on. I feel like a friend of the show. Well, I, so I often know. Yeah, absolutely. I would say you are. And uh, we always do appreciate your insight, certainly on an issue like this, as we try to understand what's happening in this part of Mexico. Uh, this is the son of El Chapo, who is, I guess, taking control of this cartel with his father behind bars. What, what do we need to know about the man nicknamed The Mouse? The Mouse. O, uh, Ovidio goes by Raton. Well, Chapo has many kids. He had many wives and many kids. He never really divorced the women. So there's four key sons. Uh, there was a fifth named Edgar who was brutally murdered, gunned down in 2008. So he was kind of the heir apparent. Ovidio is one of the youngest one. He's 30. He's 32 years old. Um, you know, nature abhors a vacuum, and I guess so does narco trafficking. When the dad went away, uh, there's been jostling for power. Uh, clearly, what happened in 2019, if people remember, they caught him. The, the National Guard caught him. But then there was a force of 700 gunmen who shot it out, and the president of Mexico basically said, let this guy go. There have been reports that the gunmen said, we're going to blow up a building with you know police families in there, or National Guard families. So it, it's definitely terrorism. Um, so he got away in 2019. They nabbed him. The timing, as you said, of the North American summit with Trudeau and Biden coming down there in, I think, a few days on the 9th and 10th. Um, it smacks of something political, doesn't it? I mean, these are usually nobody. I, I, I think people need to understand this. It goes all corruption in Mexico is all, all the way to the top. So no narco trafficker of any stature gets arrested unless somebody wanted him arrested. Right. right? So it could have been the thumbing in the nose of the, the fact that, you know, Biden or Trudeau, but I, I assume Biden, they might be saying, hey, what's going on in Sinaloa? 
you had a guy who just kind of shot it out with your people. So the president of Mexico might be flexing in a way and saying, look, we've got him. Not only that, I've noticed all the headlines have been, have been talking about him as a fentanyl um, uh, mastermind producer. And that is, of course, the epidemic that North Americans are most concerned with, right? right. So it's a perfect PR announcement to say, hey, look, we caught a guy that's responsible for flooding, you know, Vancouver and Canadian cities and, and, and New York and L.A. with this horrible overdose opiate drug. Um, you know, we're, we're just speculating here, but the timing is very, very um, fortuitous, let's say. Well, and it, well, it raises questions about how hasty this all was. I mean, you know, 10 soldiers were killed in this operation, I believe 19 uh, cartel members as well. That that would imply maybe sort of a, a hasty operation here. It certainly wasn't a clean one by any stretch. Well, what I've read is that there, it was six months in, the, in, in planning. I, I right? mean, a, you cannot, if you've read my book, Hunting El Chapel, which I wrote with Drew Hogan, the DE agent who, who went into Culiacan, it was really, that was the first operation they really ever attempted where they went in to Culiacan is the capital of Sinaloa State, and it is a stronghold mm-hmm. of the narco traffickers. So to go in there, and, and it's always going to be a shootout. It's going to be bloody. Um, the thing that narcos fear the most is extradition to the U.S., and the, there's a $5 million rule reward for Ovidio or the mouse. Um, currently, they're saying he's not going to be extradited, but <laughs> history repeating, he's back in Altiplano prison, which is exactly the same prison where his father tunneled out with the 1.5 kilometer, you know, uh, super uh, motorcycle escape. Um, they fear U.S. justice because, you know, in... In Mexico, they can corrupt the system. The amount, the tens and tens and tens of millions of dollars, you know, dwarf any salary that a cop can make or a prison, a correctional officer. So the bribery is endemic. What what I would say to you is, is nothing's really changed. Sinaloa was always a stronghold of the cartel, but what changed was the generation. The older guys, like, if you, you know, Chapo escaped. Chapo did these things, but you didn't hear about these bloody shootouts with the army. You know why? Because he paid off everybody. Mm-hmm. He paid off tens and tens and tens and maybe hundreds of millions. We don't know exactly how much up, up into the to the government in Mexico City. This younger generation, as they call them narco juniors, you know, Chapo, I can tell you from our book, he used to chastise guys like Ovidio. Why are you buying a McLaren? Why are you buying a Bugatti? Like, you know, Chapo used to drive around in a, in a Jetta. Mind you, it was armor-plated, but, you know, (laughs) high-profile does not go with narco-trafficking. And and Ovidio had a social media presence. Um, You just can't live in the spotlight and also be, um, you know, on the wrong side of these things. So somebody pulled the trigger and said – I'm sorry, that's a bad metaphor. Somebody pulled the pushed a button and said, "It's time for this guy to get locked up." And it was very bloody because you're really going in there with people who are wed, who, who are willing to shoot it out with the cops. I don't think they intended to shoot that Aero Mexico flight. They were trying to get a, a, a probably the a military jet, and then you know in the stray fire you get 50 cal. I mean, it's just horrifying to see children. Let's not forget the collateral emotional damage just to regular people who are, you know, on an airplane saying, why are they shooting at us? This is terrorism. I mean, this is really, let's not call it narco-trafficking. Let's call it narco-terrorism. So, you know, what I see it is a desperate attempt by them saying he's not leaving Sinaloa State. As long as they could keep him in Sinaloa, they could probably still get him back. But now he's in Mexico City. And it's a fast track to get him to the U.S. where he's got multiple indictments. And uh, it's it's a desperation of, you know, 
they know. I mean, Chapo is in uh, Florida, uh, sorry, Florence Supermax in, in Colorado. He's not getting tunneled out of there anytime soon, no. despite whatever you see on on Netflix. And <laughs> right. that's he's he's dying in that prison. And so, I think that's the. The thing you have to visualize is Mexico is a massive country of many people. Many Canadians love to go there. Many, many, many states. Sinaloa is a stronghold. All the top narcos came from there. It's also got this huge coastline, so it's very easy to smuggle. Uh, so it's always been the stronghold. But yes, to see that warning you just mentioned, Canadians shelter in, spa- in, 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 in shelter in place and don't venture out if you don't have to. That's, you know. It, we haven't seen something like this in, in ages. I don't remember hearing about that in Mazatlan. So um, this is terrorism, and this is, a, I would say, unprecedented. Yeah, it seems like it. I mean, typically, you know, the, the tourist areas, you know, the, the, the cartels don't don't look for trouble. They steer clear of this. Like, it's, you know, it almost seems like it's it's left out of a lot of what goes on in Mexico. So the fact that it would be impacting these areas does seem un, unusual. So what do we read into that? Well, that all hell broke loose. I mean, you're right. Like, even in the Playa del Carmen, where we heard about Tulum and these various excarat, there never used to be violence there. People understand there's extortion. These organized crime groups, they don't just deal in drugs. They are extorting the hotels and extorting every... But they want them to function smoothly. So I would say, hey, Canadians, if you are on your way to Tulum or whatever, that's very far from Sinaloa. You're probably fine. Uh, But Sinaloa erupted. I mean, this is... You know, they they haven't just impacted tourism. They've shut down all the arteries to the city with these burning trucks. It is. It looks like you know something out of ISIS, or you know, not in our our frame of reference. Um, You know that that state has been in the grip of the narcos forever. So I, it's just I, I view it as a generational thing. The older generation, Chapel would have bribed his way out of this. El Mayo Zambada, his co-equal, these are men in their 60s, and they're. But these younger guys, which we call narco juniors, they're the or los menores, the younger generation. They're, you know, hey, they're probably just saying, "I'm going out with a blaze of glory." Maybe they played too much Xbox. It's it's not going to end well for them because the might of, you know, they're they're drawing all this attention to uh, a place that ultimately law and order will be restored, and those hotels and all those condos and Mazatlan will be safe. But at this current moment, it is a vacuum. And the gunmen have more more firepower often than the military. Uh, that's just the reality. Um, you know, you can ask where do they get the guns because that's a whole other uh, conversation. But I tie this into fentanyl. I would say because you know, Ovidio is known. All all of the Mexicans were very smart in diversifying. Chapo did as well. Not just cocaine. There was heroin. So fentanyl is what super heroin. It's a super opiate. It seems to be the drug that we're all talking about in North America. And so I saw that in a lot of the headlines, Washington Post, they would they described him, even though he's wanted for cocaine trafficking, methamphetamine production, all that, as a fentanyl you know kingpin. So I almost view, view this as kind of let's address the domestic crisis that we have had in North America with these overdoses. And it's not just impacting street guys. I was looking up who died of fentanyl overdoses recently. Oh, Tom Petty, you know, Prince. A lot of people go to these, you know, pain relief medications and get, you know, this fentanyl, which is a hundred times stronger than, than the drug they expect to get. So this epidemic, I think he, I think he's going to be the poster boy. This is my prediction of fentanyl production. He's 32 and look, we caught him and we're going to extradite him to Washington and you guys are going to prosecute him. It's window dressing. It's a bandaid because will the flow of drugs stop? No. Will the abuse of uh, uh, opiates in America or Canada stop? No. 
But, you know, politicians have to put a face on something. You have to look like you're, you know, all DEA agents and these guys in the States who've worked these cases always describe it to me like whack-a-mole. <laughs> you know, it, it's a very cynical way to look at it. So it is whack-a-mole. Like I whack this guy mm-hmm. down and another guy pops up. And, and why do they pop up? Because the consumer demand is here. You know, it's, it is supply and demand. It, this is not like an iPhone 14 Pro that they're pushing on us or a, an electric car. There is a demand here for opiates. There is a demand for methamphetamine, the demand for recreational cocaine. Somebody's going to supply it. So you, you lock up Chapel Sun, the mouse. Yeah, no, the supply will remain the same. Yeah, the void will be filled. So, so does the cartel just, you know, try to get back to business here, or do they continue with this, whatever this conflict is that they started here in reaction, right? I mean, if if he gets extradited to the United States, he gets prosecuted in the United States, are, are they going to react? Are we going to see more of this violence? I, I think, no, I think they shot their wad within... Um, within the state of Sinaloa. I mean, if people are old enough to remember, you know, I always look at it like this. It's it's narco-terrorism. Go back to Pablo Escobar. You know, he was also, I do not want to get extradited. Right. And when he was on the verge of getting extradited, he got himself elected to the... And then he bombed... Then he bombed, you know, the the Congress. He actually bombed the government. And the, and the, but we haven't seen that. Mexico City is a safe city. It has, we haven't seen that, and it, it's... I think it's localized to this state of Sinaloa, to some degree Sonora. So I think they are going to be uh, – they're shooting their load now because they wanted him to stay in Sinaloa. No, the flow, the flow will not stop. Uh, p- people – I mean, not to get too into the weeds here, but there is no one Sinaloa cartel. There, what, what the law enforcement loves to talk about are DTOs, drug trafficking organizations. So the Sons have theirs. They're all independently run, but they don't undercut each other's price hence the cartel, they use the same smuggling routes. So if his, if his supplies dries up because he's locked up, some of his underlings will step up or someone else will. I mean, the production won't stop. There's, there's huge labs. I mean, the, the real story of the fentanyl crisis is they've, they've got these precursor drugs coming in from China directly into Mexico. And it's just so easy to get it across the border. So, um, no, nothing will change. Um, I don't – maybe some kooky you know, elements – uh, they might try to assassinate cops and uh, and soldiers within Sinaloa, but I don't see this coming to Mexico City or right. because friends of mine who are really covering this, you know, on the ground, Mexican journalists, very brave guys, will say, "Look, the top narcos are the politicians. They don't let it get that close to, you know. I mean, it goes all the way to the top." By the way, a friend of mine told me, a really good journalist, said one of my buddies, like a really good journalist, was just driving in, in, in Sinaloa and was carjacked and had her phone taken by by these chapitos, they call them. So it's affecting um, my friends who are Mexican journalists call this a human rights crisis. More than a drug crisis or whatever, it is the, it, you know, just think about the people who go to work at the airport. I mean, you know, the vast majority of Mexicans are working for not very much money. This has disrupted the, the economy of their, their state. Yeah. So as much as we're concerned about Canadian tourism and, and, and are we safe there, which we should be as Canadian nationals, shelter in place, drink your Corona in your little uh, villa, don't leave, don't try to go shopping, it'll blow over. Right. But, you know, I mean, there is a human rights crisis that's really impacting, you know, the vast majority of law-abiding Mexicans who just want to live their lives and not be terrorized, Right. Absolutely. Well, much more to your book, as mentioned, Hunting El Chapo, and uh, much more as well, douglascentury.com. Really appreciate the insight on all of this, Douglas. Thanks so much for making some time for us here today.
Oh, Rob, anytime you want me on, let me know. All the best. Take care. Uh, that's uh, Douglas Century, uh, Calgary's own uh, author, journalist. Uh, his most recent book, Split Decision, also the last boss of Brighton, but uh, did write the book, as mentioned, Hunting El Chapo, co-authored by the DEA agent who was front and center in that operation. And yes, uh, Ovidio looms large in this book as well. He certainly factors into this story. Uh, he was a key player in his dad's business, and maybe not surprisingly of the sons, he was the one who emerged as a leader once uh, El Chapo, once dad was in prison. So uh, El Raton, the mouse, as he's known, may now be following in El Chapo's footsteps here in terms of being arrested, extradited, prosecuted, locked up in the United States. But we're seeing the cartel's reaction in recent days here to the arrest, and, and that's what uh, is uh, causing all of this violence and unrest. So some interesting days ahead, of course, and we got the uh, summit happening in Mexico City soon here uh, with Joe Biden, with uh, Justin Trudeau. Too many people, too much consumption and growth mania. At the age of 90, biologist Paul Ehrlich may have lived long enough to see some of his dire prophecies come true. You seem to be saying that humanity is not sustainable. Oh, humanity is not sustainable. Well, I mean, he sounds coherent for a 90-year-old, but are the arguments of Paul Ehrlich, author of The Population Bomb 55 years ago, any more relevant now than they were then? Well, he's front and center in the piece the other day on 60 Minutes, and his doomsday predictions are back. This all coincides with Earth's population surpassing 8 billion, far higher than it was in 1968, obviously. Uh, but has the, the conversation changed at all since then? Well, joining us to talk more about uh, some of these issues is uh, someone who's written a lot about it. Uh, Pierre Desrochers is an associate professor in the Department of Geography, Geomatics, and Environment at the University of Toronto, Mississauga, co-author of the book Population Bombed, Exploding the Link Between Overpopulation and Climate Change. Pierre, great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So uh, Paul's back. Paul Ehrlich is, uh, is back front well, and center. It's not like he never went away. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, what do you make of that, first of all? That, that you know, I mean, and well, we can go through it. Obviously, a lot of what he forecast in, in the book and, and through the 70s especially, I, I think has really been discredited, yet he's still held up as, as an expert on, on these matters. Well, the thing with Ehrlich is that he was never famous because he said anything original. I mean, plenty of people were saying the same thing he was at the time. What sets him apart among academics is that he's extremely good on television. So people don't realize that when the population bomb came out in 1968, it was a dud because uh, – to summarize a very complex story, you had a bunch of you, know, you had a bunch of eugenicists and after World War II uh, to justify their foundation money, and they all reinvented themselves as population as population bombers. So when the population bomb came out in '68, it really had no impact whatsoever. But because Ehrlich was a very charismatic uh, academic, he ended up on the Late Show with Johnny Carson in the early '70s, and he was so good that Carson brought him back 25 times. So he's always been an extremely good communicator and that's why you all they always keep bringing him up not because he says anything that is true or original but because he's very good at scaring people and at delivering the kind of message that i guess journalists looking for ratings will be happy to uh, put on tv well, it's interesting because, you know, obviously, look, we face challenges, you know, environmental challenges globally. And, and sure, there are challenges that come with, you know, this many people on the planet. But, you know, the population, the global population is, is more than doubled since 1968. Uh, based on everything that we were hearing in the book and, and subsequent to it, 
you know, we, we shouldn't be here or, you know, the, this planet should be a disaster. That how is it, it, it that, it, right, that we're, we're thriving in many respects? Well, that's because this basic model is flawed. The problem with uh, biologists like Ehrlich and others is that they don't want to admit that human beings have evolved beyond other animal species. To them, we're just a bigger plague of locusts. But, you know, if you wonder, if you stop thinking for a few minutes as to, well, why did we end up on top of the food chain? Well, it's because we ended up developing uh, abilities that you don't see elsewhere in the animal kingdom. So we trade for physical goods. We're not uh, reliant on what is available locally. Uh, we're extremely good at inventing things, you know, and we invite things by combining uh, existing things in new ways. So I'm surrounded by plastics uh, today, which have replaced things like uh, glasses, paper, cardboard. Well, the beauty of plastics and many other things that surround us is that we've replaced says the things that grew on the surface of the planet, like trees, cotton, wool, uh, whale oil for that matter, by stuff that comes from below the ground. And obviously no other animal species has ever done that. And then we've made agricultural production much more productive than in the past. So uh, where I live in Ontario today, we produce something like five times more corn on the same piece of land than a century ago. And then most people have left the countryside and have moved to cities. And you don't see anything analogous in uh, the animal kingdom. So this is why even though there's a lot more of us, we're a lot wealthier than in the past. Our air is cleaner, our water is cleaner, and our planet is a lot greener than it used to be. Again, because of all these phenomena, we've moved a lot of people to the cities. We've replaced wood and other products uh, by coal, by petroleum, by things that are derived from them. And so the result is that we've been able to eat our, uh, to have our cake and eat it too. But a biologist like Ehrlich can never conceive that or admit that humans have evolved beyond other species. And the problem is that as long as you're not going to challenge the foundation, if you will, of his mental model, he will say that, well, more people more growth, more mania, therefore less resources and uh, we're ruining everything, whereas in fact we're not. Well, that's the thing. I mean, you know, absent innovation, maybe some of that would have come true. But it was interesting mm -hmm. as, as Ehrlich and others were, were forecasting, you know, famine and, and mass starvation. There were others who were making sure that didn't happen, who were innovating. Norman Borlaug, obviously, is one of the people who really helped to discredit uh, all of the doomsday prophecies, uh, you know, the, you know, the innovation that he helped develop, the, you know, the innovations in farming and agriculture that, that allow us to feed more people more efficiently. And what's interesting is that Borlaug had already done his innovations, his key innovations before the population bomb was written. And you could already see in the data that was available that, you know, was, uh, uh, something had been turned, things had been improving for a while. And uh, India was uh, slowly, it was already... Uh, successfully fighting famine by the time Ehrlich said, well, you know, India is uh, India is doomed and we should have forced sterilization and all these policies that are associated with population control. I mean, to be honest, the one part of the world at the time where Ehrlich was right was in communist economies where they were unable to generate innovation, mm -hmm. they were unable to generate growth. So China went down this uh, rabbit hole of, uh, you know, uh, one-child policy. Uh, the environment got way worse in Eastern Europe. But in places where people were free to innovate, to trade, to uh, substitute products and to come up with new things, uh, Western Europe, the United States, Canada, uh, the environment got better while more people uh, lived in those areas. And uh, we were able to innovate our way out of both scarcity and environmental damage. Well, again, we face the same questions, right? I mean, how are we able, going to be able to, to feed 8 billion people? How are we going to be able to house 8 billion people? We face the same kind of challenges, the impact on the environment, the impact on other species. And, you know, we face the same kind of questions. Well, what happens when we get to 10 billion or 15 billion? 
But given what we've learned so far and the lessons learned over the last 55 years, what does it tell us about our ability to face these challenges going forward? Well, I would say a few things. The first is that we shouldn't trust politicians to guide us through various energy transitions. So uh, the first rule that we should have, I would argue, is again, replace stuff that grows on the surface of the planet by stuff that comes from below as much as possible. So everything from ethanol that we put in our car, I mean, why do we put food, uh, why do we put food in our car? Or replacing, you know, plastic straw by paper straws. Well, you need to grow more, more trees, you need to damage the environment more. No, plastics are great as long as they're handled properly. And the problems that we have with plastics are not in rich economies like the United States or Canada, where we do handle our garbage properly, but in less advanced economies. But instead of going after plastics and trying to ban them, no, I think we should go forward with more plastic. The problem is just how do we handle them? How do we dispose of them? So um, don't trust politicians to believe that, uh, to force us into transitions that honestly, if you look at the grand arc of history, just don't make any sense and will likely make things worse. I mean, the climate change issues is is one that didn't really exist as a concern in, in 1968. And, and certainly, you know, no, people... No, 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 I, I will it. stop you there. Back up a second, okay. Because I've read more Ehrlich than most people. <laughs> uh, at, the, at the time, it's funny because if you read Ehrlich in the late 60s, early 70s, he's worried about both global warming and global cooling. So at the time, global cooling uh, was attributed to air pollution, things that came out of smokestack. But the idea of CO2 as a greenhouse gas was already there. And when you read Ehrlich, he mentions both problems. And for him, it's always – everything that humans do is always going to make things worse. So he was worried about both things at the time. And what's interesting is that his main collaborators at the time, people like uh, Stephen Schneider at Stanford, uh, were all into global cooling until they no longer were because global cooling did not happen. So they all switch overnight to uh, global warming. But what never changed in terms of what Ehrlich Schneider and others said about the climate is that the problem was always too many people, too much growth and uh, unsustainable development, this growth mania that they really don't like. Right. And I mean, it, it speaks to what you addressed in, in you know the book that you co-authored that I alluded to. It, you know, the connection seems on the surface like it's there. More people equals equals more emissions. But is is the, the correlation between climate change and population that obvious? Is there more to it? Well, what you know, in the end, you can live well in Calgary or Edmonton, but also in Singapore. As long as people are energy rich, uh, they can adapt to anything. And again, what is really interesting, well, interesting or depressing, depending on your perspective about this whole climate change issue, is that a lot of people seem to believe that, well, if we were to revert back to what our ancestors did, cut down trees, kill whales and stuff, somehow the climate will stop uh, varying or being unpredictable, which of course it wouldn't be. I mean, our ancestors a few centuries ago went through a little ice age. The earth has warmed up a bit, a little bit since 1850. And at the same time, while well, we've become incredibly wealthier, incredibly safer from nature, almost nobody dies from uh, climate-related events and advanced economies today. So we need more wealth. We need to build more resilience. And in the end, there's nothing we can do. The climate will change whatever we do. So we need to adapt. And wealthier people are in a much better situation to adapt to whatever nature throws at us. Uh, than poor people. And more people means more wealth, more brains. People are not just mouths to feed, but also brains to think and hands to work on new solutions. Well, it's interesting because there seems to be a consensus like here in Canada that Canada needs to grow. We need more people. We need more babies. We need more immigrants. We need to get bigger. Uh, and that's plus kind of a challenge for environmentalists. I mean, David Suzuki once famously said Canada is full, an, an odd thing for some of, uh, of his background to, to declare. Well, but, indeed. 
I, I, <laughs> you know, it's family situation. But yeah. no, the, well, and the, no, the interesting thing is that there's always been this tension in the environmentalist movement between people who want to restrict immigration to rich countries because, again, they're operating on this assumption that poor people have, by definition, less impact on the environment. You let you bring them to less uh, to more advanced economies, they'll, be, they'll become wealthier and they will have more of an environmental impact. Whereas in practice, you know, if you've ever traveled to a poor economy, their cities are way more polluted than ours, their countryside, you know, people uh, will poach wildlife, will cut down trees to eat themselves and to cook their meals. And uh, rich people who, again, can rely on underground resources and uh, more advanced technologies, yes, they're wealthier, but I would argue that apart from CO2 emissions, their environmental impact is typically much less than poor people who don't care about the environment because they've got to survive. So growth, well, it can pose challenges, obviously. I mean, growth is good. Growth is not something we should fear. Certainly growth is not something we should try to inhibit. Well, I mean, if you look again at the track record historically, uh, I don't know what the demographic profile of your audience is, but uh, I was born a little bit after the uh, population bomb was published, which means I'm not that young. I'm going on 54 this year. But I remember what uh, Montreal used to look like in the 70s with the big oil refineries uh, in the east end of the city. Or if you go back over a century ago, uh, Montreal and maybe 10% of the population that it has today, but everybody was burning coal at the time. You did not have car, you had horses, uh, which with their, you know, the resulting manure and urine and epidemic diseases, uh, Montreal, Toronto, Vancouver were way more populated over a century ago when people were much poorer and um, where the population was only a tiny fraction of what it is today. So growth not only improves our standard of livings, but also improves um, our environment. I mean, most um, environmental indicators that we have in advanced economies have shown really positive trends for a very long time. Now, of course, again, nothing's perfect and we keep we need to keep innovating, but the solution is not to make people poorer or to reduce population, but rather to create the conditions that will allow people to come up with ever better solutions to use resources ever more efficiently. I mean, what is pollution in the end? Well, pollution is waste and the waste is not profitable. So, um, People in the private sector have always had an incentive, a strong incentive to do more with less, to turn pollution into valuable byproducts, and to uh, close the loop on uh, polluting emissions. So, again, this is the kind of optimistic messages that a lot of people don't want to hear today, but, and you might not get good ratings uh, with <laughs> a guest like me, but I, I think the evidence, again, does uh, strongly suggest that as long as we keep innovating, as long as we keep trading, as long as we don't turn our back on past events, that uh, uh, will not only be okay, but uh, our descendants will be better to, better off than our ancestors. Well said. We'll leave it there. Professor Desrochers, appreciate uh, the insight. Thanks so much for joining us here today. Thank you so much. All the best. Uh, that is Pierre Desrochers, Associate Professor of the Department of Geography, Geomatics, and Environment at the University of Toronto, Mississauga, co-author of Population Bombed, Exploiting the Link Between Overpopulation and Climate Change. Also, more recently, The Locavore's Dilemma in Praise of the 10,000-Mile Diet. So some interesting perspective on the uh, concerns around overpopulation. And we're hearing a lot of the same arguments that we heard in 1968. You know, there's population was 3.7 billion that we're hearing today that we've surpassed 8 billion. Yes, that comes with challenges, but it's, it's wrong to just focus on the number. Welcome back. Part of Canada's response to the Russian invasion of Ukraine was on the sanctions side, and, and not just against the Russian government, but allies of Putin, the so-called Russian oligarchs. 
the billionaires who have enriched themselves thanks to Putin's rule. So already, for example, over $120 million worth of assets from those sanctions have been frozen by the RCMP. But there's the question of whether we can and should go a step further to not just freeze those assets, but to seize those assets, to sell off those assets. And, and maybe in part then to compensate Ukraine for this invasion. So no Western country has yet done this. Canada may end up being the first. So it's the case that's, that's uh, before an Ontario court right now that could sort of set some precedent here. So the, uh, the government announced last month it was going to seize and pursue the forfeiture of $26 million from Granite Capital Holdings. That's a company owned by Roman Abramovich, maybe one of the most uh, well-known of the uh, Russian billionaire oligarchs. He used to own the soccer team in England, Chelsea, until he was forced to sell that off. So it wasn't seized by the, the British government. He, he did sell it to, to uh, somebody else. So the government is, is now moving forward then with uh, not just freezing, but seizing assets. Now, that could open all kinds of challenges. And, you know, maybe it's not just a precedent in terms of this whole situation with Russia and, and Ukraine. Could that be used elsewhere? Do we have at least a process in place to make sure that there's some fairness when we're doing so? So freezing assets is one thing, but seizing and redistributing them uh, is is something different. Uh, joining us uh, for some thoughts on all of this, very pleased to welcome the program here this afternoon, Michael Nesbitt, uh, Associate Professor of Law at the University of Calgary. Professor Nesbitt, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much. Pleasure to be here. Man, I think we do have kind of, a, you know, the criminal level in Canada, um, forfeiture laws where, where police are, are able to basically seize property that are associated uh, with the proceeds of crime. Is this kind of the same realm, just at a, a bigger scale? I think that's going to be one of the questions. So on the one hand, we have heard complaints about this new sanctions regime in that it would be unique, and, and it would be in the realm of sanctions, to not just freeze assets, but then forfeit them and redistribute them to Ukraine. Uh, the flip side of that is, as you say, we do have proceeds of crime legislation where we take the money and redistribute it into the system. Now, the difference is the legislation, the relevant legislation. So for proceeds of crime, for most of those provincial legislation in particular, you have to show on the balance of probabilities that the goods or money were derived from or used in um, the criminal enterprise. Right. In With respect to the sanctions, it's a little different. We, we don't seem to have set a standard. It seems to simply be if you're listed by the government – uh, and then we get access to uh, something controlled by, and we don't know what that means, by one of those listed persons or entities, which usually means a business or a trust, uh, then then we can forfeit the legislation. And so what, one of the legal questions in the first instance, I would imagine, would be, well, what, what is the standard by which we are allowing this to take place? So, mm -hmm. so if we drew the parallel, you know, do you have to show on the balance of probabilities that these were derived for the purposes for which they were said to be listed in the first place, which is to say this is someone who's responsible for uh, mass human rights violations, uh, protect, uh, perhaps for war crimes, uh, depending on the individual, what they've been listed for in the first place. And we simply don't know at this point. It's not terribly clear in our legislation. 
So is, is it a lower legal threshold when it comes to the sanctions we have in place right now and the, the idea of, of freezing assets? I mean, bluntly, we don't know. So, um, you know, the, the, the sort of simple answer is we haven't really enforced our sanctions legislation to date. Uh, we've used it as a tool of messaging to say that we are supportive of our allies who are doing sanctions. Uh, we've used it as, frankly, messaging domestically to say to our domestic population, look what we're doing. We take these abuses, whatever they might be, seriously. Uh, we haven't tended to bother to enforce them. Uh, we have you know, less than a handful of cases in 30 years. Uh, and the legislation itself isn't, as I mentioned, terribly clear on what the standard is. So we're going to be, if we proceed with all of this, uh, it's going to be pretty novel here in Canada as well. What's interesting, as I mentioned, I mean, Roman Abramovich is, you know, maybe amongst the most well-known of, of the, the so-called oligarchs. Um, you know, his, his connection to Putin is clear, but I don't think anyone's making the argument that he's enriched himself from the quote-unquote crime here. You know, the idea that somehow he's profited from the invasion of Ukraine directly. I mean, he's obviously profited from the rule of Vladimir Putin. Um, mm -hmm. So despite the obviousness, I guess, of, of him being identified as an oligarch, are the specifics of what he's alleged to have done here, is, is it clear why we're going after him? No, this is, I mean, this is this is the thing with our le sanctions legislation. We have a very broad heads of power by which you can designate persons. Um, and then and then we don't give much information. We just provide a list of names. And we don't say particularly what they're thought to have done. Uh, we don't provide the details. Uh, in court, this is where I get to the, the standard of proof, which is presumably, although you and I can say, look, obviously, you know, this guy has enriched himself off the backs of, frankly, Russians and Ukrainians. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, you got to prove that at some standard in court, I would imagine. And we don't know, uh, we don't know what, what information the government has or had brought to bear. I, I will add, it appears this morning, The Guardian is reporting that uh, Abramovich, which is not surprising at all, moved most of his assets out of his own name right before he was sanctioned, when it became yeah. evident that he was to be sanctioned. So it sounds like uh, this particular company is now held in trust, held by at arm's length, quote unquote, uh, by his children. So if, if that reporting is accurate. So that'll, that'll introduce another hurdle in that right now, uh, it sounds like this may be controlled not by him, but by his kids. Well, it may seem confusing to people that we still, you know, that this is all not clear. But even though, you know, we, we've imposed sanctions in the past, a lot of this is new. In fact, you know, some of these powers the government has, has given itself, that, that just came in last year with the, the budget legislation. Yeah, that's right. And even before that, we do, you know, our focus was never on investigation and enforcement. It was on uh, listing the, the people to send a foreign policy message. So it, it takes you from sort of do we have the right people listed to send the message internationally or domestically that we want to send with respect to long, uh, wrongdoing into the realm of the domestic legal sphere, which is did you do everything um, by the book? Uh, did you exercise due process in the listing and investigations of the individuals? Uh, what's the standard? Uh, what do we have to show that they've particularly done to get listed in the first place? Are they deserving? Uh, we, under our legislation, the next question, if these, if these assets are indeed held by his children, you know, our, our legislation says, well, if it's controlled or 
directly or indirectly by the individual, then we can seize them. Uh, the question for us has long been, what does control mean? So in the U.S., it means do you own 50% plus one of the legislation. Could be something less than that in the U.K. In Canada, we've just provided no guidance in 30 years on this. So we, we really don't know. This is all new for us. It is. And I, I mean, this court case, I, I think, is going to establish, you know, a lot of the, the principles around this. But moving forward, we, we may need to, you know, to address this in legislation, right, to, to clarify all of this, to have some kind of a process or have standards in place. Like maybe we're a long way still from from figuring all of this out. Yeah, look, if you if you want my personal opinion, we're a long way from figuring it out. But the, the, again, the, the focus has been sort of messaging. And at some point, the process in Canada, we're a rule of law country. So the process has to catch up with that. And for the last 20 years, countries like the UK and the US have revived their processes. So to ensure that these are properly investigated, uh, that there's proper case files, making the case, um, putting the due process first, in Canada, we just don't know. We just know that Global Affairs is in charge of this, and Global Affairs has no history of doing any of that, right? Uh, this has traditionally been the realm of the RCMP or um, other investigative agencies. So mm-hmm. we're, we're, we're probably looking not just at legislation, we're probably looking at reform at some level in terms of just the bureaucratic procedures for doing this. Money uh, for the Public Prosecution Service of Canada and the RCMP to actually prosecute and investigate these sort of things. They can be extremely complicated. Oh, absolutely. Well, we'll see where this all goes from here. Really fascinating stuff. Professor Nesbitt, appreciate the input on this. Thanks for joining us here. It was a pleasure. All the best. Likewise. Take care. Uh, that is Michael Nesbitt, Associate Professor of Law at the University of Calgary. Look, I think on the surface, there's there's an inherent uh, justification, I think. The idea, or the, it just seems right, it seems fair, that you know, given the massive cost Ukraine faces now, rebuilding from this illegal invasion, uh, that this would be a way of funding that. But I guess, you know, we do need to be careful here. What what makes somebody um, liable for this? What what makes somebody an oligarch? What ties a, a, an individual, a private citizen to a regime? So what kind of a standard do we need to set? What kind of a bar needs to be cleared in order to say, yes, that person is connected to that regime. That person does bear responsibility for what happened. So we do have a legitimate right to seize their assets. And maybe even just having that kind of regime in place sends a message uh, to those people. They're not welcome here in the first place. We don't want you, you know, hiding your, your dirty money here. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. And you can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time.